Are you curious about the differences between medical school and nursing school and how to bridge the gaps between nurses and doctors? Stay tuned as we discuss this very subject with innovative medical school mentor and professor Ted O'Connell right here on episode 216 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I am so grateful you're listening, whether it's your first time tuning in or you've been hanging out with me here on the airwaves for months or maybe even years. Thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you and your nursing career, and I'm here to share education, inspiration, and ideas that can get you moving in a positive and inspired direction. Meanwhile, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, hop on over to nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 216. We are here today with Dr. Ted O'Connell, a family physician, educator, author, innovator, and speaker, and I can also say now podcaster. And Ted, thank you for being here and welcome to the Nurse Keith Show. It's my pleasure, Keith. Thank you so much for having me on your great show. Oh, I am thrilled to have you here. You're the first physician to be on my show, and I'm very excited. I hope you're the first of many, and I hope to have you back already. So there's a lot to talk about in terms of your history and your bio, and we will get to that. But the first question I want to ask you about is, what is it like teaching medical students and being in that milieu? How is that for you? Oh, well, that's actually been a lifelong passion of mine. You know, I'm a, I really enjoy my clinical work. It's the opportunity to educate students and residents, though, that really keeps me energized on top of that, being able to contribute to the next generation of clinicians, being able to interact with young folks, Mm -hmm. uh, having them come with their energy and their great questions and different perspective on things. It it really just keeps you on top of your game uh, if you have to be actively teaching. Yeah, and I'm sure they give you a hard time if you're not on top of your game. Uh, In a polite way, yes, they do. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you teach uh, lecture and also in the clinical space? Where do you interact with your students? Oh, yes, I do it in almost all venues that you can think of. I have uh, students working with me in the outpatient medical office, also where I teach residents. I work in the hospital as well on the inpatient medicine service, so we have students work with us there. I do some procedural skills workshops. We do small group interactive facilitated sessions, lecture-based panels, Wow! you name it, you name it. Okay. So you're deeply ensconced in the medical education world right now. I would say so, yes. And you also work, are you an internist, internal medicine doc? I'm actually family medicine. Oh, that's right. You're family medicine. And you're teaching a lot of students who are going into family medicine. Yes. We actually teach both undifferentiated and differentiated students. When I see them as first or second years, they usually have not decided When I teach them as third years, which is probably the most common scenario, they're doing some of their clinical rotations. So they're starting to figure out what specialty they want to do. And then we'll see some of the students again in their fourth year or sometimes for the first time. And by then they've decided on our specialty and are really trying to decide where they want to do their residency. Right. And I understand that 
just bouncing over to nursing for a second, that you have a family connection to the nursing profession, right? Oh, absolutely. My mother, she was a an orthopedic nurse up until the time she got really busy with child rearing and then kind of stepped away from that, continued with some school nursing, and then eventually retired from the nursing world and and went in and became a travel agent. All but right. yeah, she had she had a long career as a nurse. Awesome. And did her being a nurse when you were younger, did that influence your decision to pursue medicine? Was it part of your decision-making process? You know, I think those things in our lives always have some influence. So yes, I would say so. She used to talk very proudly and passionately about her time. She trained at Mass General on the East Coast wow, and, and just awesome. talked about you know what a great profession it was for her and how how much she enjoyed her training and the milieu of that hospital and she actually met my father there so there's kind of that personal romantic connection involved and and so yeah they both talked about their careers in medicine i'm the only one of the children in the family to have gone into it but yeah i think there's always some significant influence from what our parents are doing. Great. Yeah. And I had a couple nurses in my family, actually my my father's sisters. And one of my aunts actually always boasted about being one of the personal nurses to George Patton during World War II. And we never knew how much of what she said was a tall tale or how much was actually true. But she would say when they were out in the battlefield, she would have Patton soak his hemorrhoids in his helmet. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> As long as we're on tall tales, I was actually born in London and my parents were over there for a year doing some some work and I came along and I was actually delivered by the physician who eventually became the royal obstetrician and delivered Princess Diana's babies. So I like to claim that I had an early influence on his career, but I'm sure he was well on his way. So am, am I actually having a royal on the Nurse Keith show? No, I can't claim that I'm a royal. Oh, I, he, he, this was before he was probably <laughs> a resident or early in his career when he was involved in my delivery and he eventually right. became the, the royal obstetrician. Well, we'll consider you medical royalty. Let's just start there. <laughs> Family practice medical royalty. So going back to this whole notion of nursing and medical students and medical residents, based on my audience, who are mostly nurses, what do residents and nursing students learn about nurses and nursing throughout their their education? Like, how does that all happen and come together? You know, I would actually say that medical education, going down the medical student route and into residencies and the nursing education and into the nursing route are incredibly siloed. Mm. I think we don't learn nearly enough about what one another's education and training look like. When I was in my own residency training, my roommate and best friend was dating and eventually married a nurse. And, and I got a kind of a look into the education from that standpoint. But I mm -hmm. think outside of that, I probably wouldn't really have a good sense of what nursing education and training looks like. And, and right. then you're kind of just then interacting with the end product, um, with an experienced, uh, either a nursing student or an experienced nurse in the hospital. But I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for interprofessional education. Yeah. I would actually come to think of it talking with you right now. I would love to see a podcast about 
nurses and doctors. I would love to see a podcast with a nurse and a doctor kind of really digging deeper into the differences and the similarities between nursing and medicine and finding where we can bridge the gaps, where we can oh, learn think, from one another. Because there's so much fodder for that conversation, I think, in the 21st century. Oh, there really is. I think just even starting with the basics of understanding what the training and the experience looks like on each side mm -hmm. um, would lead to lots of bridging of gaps and better communication and Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think it would be, make for a great podcast. Yeah, and I'm sure most physicians and medical students don't know that nurses have their own sets of diagnoses that they use. They're not pathophysiological. They're not diagnosing conditions. They're basically diagnosing, uh, we use a lot of like deficit, like self-care deficit or things like that, that mm -hmm. demonstrate just what we're seeing. So it would be just be very interesting to see that interface and how they relate to each other. Absolutely. And I, I think even just a, a resident or a physician understanding some of those things that nurses are looking at and the lens through which they're looking. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot you can learn about patients, especially in my experience on the inpatient side. If as a physician, you're talking to your nurse about, or not your nurse, but the nurse who's caring for your patients, mm -hmm. who, because they're seeing the patients for six or eight or more hours a day and are intimately involved in doing those different evaluations than we are. And we're going into the room for five, 10 minutes and, you know, getting just a, a very brief snapshot. So yeah, I think there's a lot to learn there. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, when medical residents and medical students are on the floor or they're in a rotation, what is it really like for them? We hear all sorts of reports and we hear that the number of hours they can actually be on staff have been decreased over the last few years so that they're not working like 50 million hours straight. But what is the experience like for them and why is it so very exhausting? Well, for residents, there used to not be any rules at all about how much they could work. And that's where the term resident came from. They were in the old days actually living in the hospital for the most part. Over the last more than a decade now, there are limitations where there's an 80-hour work week. They have to have one day off out of seven. Mm -hmm. But if you think about that, that is still really busy. 80 um, hours then, is a lot. Yeah. It is. It is. And then backing up into the medical students who are the stage before training, they technically don't have a limitation in what they can do. However, a lot of the residency-related rules have kind of trickled down as a culture thing. What is it like in the beginning? It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going from your first two years of medical school, which by and large are being in a classroom, being in lectures, being in small group discussions, and doing a lot of book learning. And you have a lot of knowledge piled up, but not much and sometimes very, very little clinical experience and taking that knowledge to patient care. And so you get there and it's you know a little bit shocking almost because you are often given some responsibility. It can be intimidating dealing with the residents and the attending physicians and nurses who know way more than you. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're really the low person on the totem pole and just trying to find your way and not hurt anybody in the process yeah, and try to really figure out. Yeah, that's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. And just trying to figure out how to take some of that knowledge and, and make it useful. It's a process. 
Yeah, it sounds like a very exhausting process. And I know you're the founding director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Kaiser Permanente in its Napa Solano, right? Yes, that's so right. So when did that particular residency in family medicine start? Has it been around a while? No, we launched in 2014. So we are now, we've had five classes that have come through, two classes have graduated, and the third will graduate this coming June. Prior to that, I was running a residency program down in Southern California, uh, mm -hmm. but came up to Northern California to start up that new one. That's fantastic. I mean, I know you're an associate clinical professor at UC San Francisco School of Medicine. You're assistant clinical professor at UC Davis and Drexel University School of Medicine. You've got a lot going on and you have received awards. You've written and edited over a dozen medical textbooks and chapters and peer-reviewed journal articles and you're editor-in-chief of Elsevier's Clinical Key MedEd, a worldwide medical education platform. You've got a lot on your plate right now. And I'm curious, in the midst of everything that you do, interacting with the residents and the medical students and the teaching that you do, and also your, your own clinical work and the writing that you do, what are the things that, that most inspire and light you up? Well, I think my family first, you know, I, I've got a wonderful family and children and, you know, that is really my main focus and why I do what I do. So being with them and being at their sporting events and skiing and snowboarding together and family dinners, that is my main energy source. With the work that I do, I, I'm doing work that I really enjoy and that energizes me. And so a lot of those things that you just listed don't really feel like work. I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy talking about medicine like we're doing now. I enjoy developing new and innovative projects. And, and so when you do that, I, I think that's a lot of what drives wellness. You can work a lot, but if you're passionate about it and enjoying it, it often doesn't feel like work. And, and all of the teaching that I do, I really enjoy uh, and then I have plenty, you know, I do have plenty of hobbies too outside of the medical center and social engagements and things like that that mm -hmm. uh, inspire and bring me joy. Right. That's wonderful. So you're a very busy man. You've got a lot going on, a lot of plates in the air, but it sounds like you have a pretty well balanced life and your family plays a large role in your life despite all of these other responsibilities you have. That's a very good way to distill it down. Yeah. yeah I agree with and, that, Keith. And I would assume that that would be a great model for your students, the medical residents, the students who are looking to you as a mentor, as a role model, I would assume, and they can see that you actually have a life and you've created a career where you can actually spend time with your family and also do really good work in the world. Yes, uh, absolutely. I, you know, mentorship and professional development is one of the things that I really enjoy about my job. I don't know that I've necessarily thought about it in the way that you just said it. I do like to talk about wellness and do like to let my learners get a sense that I'm doing normal things um, just to kind of break down barriers in, in communication. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do. I bring my family to residency social functions whenever I can. We periodically will have residents over for dinner. You know, I, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of giving them a glimpse from a mentorship angle, 
to me, it's always been more about being sociable and, and breaking down those uh, barriers because medicine can be very hierarchical. And if we get to know each other as as individuals and people and social beings, I just think it makes our teams stronger. It absolutely does. And I'm glad I've put this bug in your ear that those things that you do with your residents and your students is actually demonstrating something really important to them about their life and the kind of life they can choose to create for themselves. And right, I think absolutely. in the 21st century, when we're all inundated with information and we work really hard and cost of living is really high, and there's so many things that can bury us in the course of our days and our weeks and months, that them seeing you live this well-rounded life is just a great example to set. And I just want to take my hat off to you for doing that, because I think it's a wonderful thing to do. It's a great service to your students. Right. Well, well, thanks, Keith. I'm, sure. you've, you've given me a little bit different perspective, and it's, it's always good to hear somebody outside of oneself reflect back how something looks. And yeah. uh, so I appreciate that. Oh, you're so welcome. So we're going to take a really quick break and don't touch that dial. And when we come back, I'm going to talk more with you, Ted, about the ways that nurses and doctors and medical residents and medical students can interact, how we can improve communication, and how we can make this symbiosis between medicine and nursing more efficacious and more growthful for everyone. And I also want to touch base about your podcast and the other work that you're doing in the audio world. So don't touch that dial, and we'll be right back. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of the Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty nifty premiums and gifts directly from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nurse Keith. Also, please consider signing up for my newsletter at nursekeith.com so that you can receive my bi-weekly message just for you. Finally, if someone you know could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, even if they do one session, you'll receive credit for one hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. And you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. Remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits over time. What a deal. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So now let's dig back into today's topic. And we're back. Thanks for hanging out with us here at Nurse Keith at the Nurse Keith Show, episode 216 with Dr. Ted O'Connell. And Ted, right before the break, we were talking about setting examples for your students about living a great life, a well-rounded life, and a, a life that includes your family and, and your hobbies and just taking care of yourself and living the best life you can. And 
At the same time that you have that going on and you have your teaching and all the work that you do and your writing, et cetera, you're also the co-founder and the chief operating officer of Exam Circle. And you described it as a disruptive innovation dedicated to providing free online question banks to help reduce the cost of education and eliminate the access gap to high quality exam prep for medical students. And at the same time, you're also the co-founder and chief content officer of Inside the Boards. Now, Inside the Boards is an audio application for medical students. And what is that about? Because I'm wondering if we might be able to take that model and create something for nursing students. Oh, I think you definitely could, Keith. I, I don't have enough insider knowledge about nursing education to know if anything like that already exists. It but might. I'm sure there's <laughs> I'm sure there's some good opportunity there. So yes, you said it well with Exam Circle, the intent was to try to get really outstanding, high quality content to enable medical students to gain knowledge and prepare themselves for their medical licensing exams and cut down the cost of that entire process. The series of three exams is very expensive. The prep materials out there, including some of the online question banks, which are popular, is very expensive. And based on my background kind of in that world with exam prep and some of the books I've written, we decided to try crowdsourcing and hmm. get students and residents involved in helping to create the content and launched this site with that idea that it's going to be crowdsourced, it's going to be free, and it has taken off pretty nicely. We have some work still to do from a programming standpoint and a development standpoint. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is humming right along. That's and that fantastic. Led it, yes, thanks. And then that led kind of into the work with Inside the Boards. And the intention there, it's audio we have four podcasts that are up focused a lot around kind of developing one's medical knowledge and again, preparing for exams. And as part of that, besides the podcast launched an audio question bank. In that case, you can be jogging or exercising or shopping and do your work and learn as you go. And I want to share with you one resource you might want to share with some of your students. It's called openmd.com. And it's linked on my website, but you can just go right to the website. It was created so that people who don't have access to UpToDate or Hippocrates or any of those very expensive subscriptions where you have access to peer-reviewed information, reliable information, OpenMD.com gives you the ability to search through millions of articles, all peer-reviewed or from highly reliable edu or .gov sources, no like Google blogs and all that other stuff that comes up when you try to look for medical information. So OpenMD is a great place for medical students who don't yet have access to UpToDate and all those other websites. So I just wanted to point that out to you. I will absolutely check that out. I've never actually heard of it. So it's, it's new. Uh, it's potentially pretty new. Okay, I'll check it out when we when we get off the air here. Yeah, I think it's a great thing, especially for young medical students who are low on cash and they need to be able to access this information without all the noise that comes with it and the expense that comes with up-to-date and other subscription services. So anyway, I digress. So in terms of doctors and nurses interacting, what would you think would be 
the best ways that a nurse on a unit or in any institution can support a medical resident or a medical student and be helpful? Well, I would start by saying that I think for the most part, nurses are incredibly helpful and supportive to medical students and residents. I personally learned a ton from nurses throughout my medical training. They saved my rear end quite a number of times by pointing things out for me or a little whisper in the ear about different ways to do things. Right. Um, Doctor, don't do that. Do this. <laughs> Right. Yes. When I when I was a first-year resident, <laughs> we were assigned to run the code team. And, and there were senior residents and others around. But as the first-year intern, it was our job to do that. And we had quite a few very kind nurses who knew the routine and would make sure that they were standing next to the first-year intern. And they'd say, doctor, do you want to give some epinephrine? And then, and then you'd give the order. It was just a really nice way to kind of learn as a team and start to spread your wings as a new doctor, knowing that you had support and friendly faces there. Right. To get to your question about trying to understand one another is really, I think, the key to developing those relationships. I've said it earlier in the show, I don't think most Physicians really understand what nursing training is all about. And I think just taking time to listen to what one another has to say and trying to understand where somebody's coming from. And if somebody calls you and says they're concerned about somebody's blood pressure, I mean, one common approach is to just say, okay, that's fine, or, and get off the phone. But I think it could be helpful to say, you know, I'm okay with that blood pressure and here's why. Mm-hmm. Is that just decreases the level of anxiety for the person on the other end of the phone. And it's a two-way street just about communicating and discussing the why about why a concern's being raised or why mm-hmm. a call is being made. Why you're waking up the doctor at 3 a.m. Right. Right, right. And <laughs> I think it's, like the doc, you know, it's the doctor's responsibility to understand that there's a reason for that phone call and they're not calling to try to wake you up. They're calling because mm-hmm. they're concerned about a patient or something that's going on. Right. I can't tell you how many nurses tell me, you know, I hate calling the doctor to wake him or her up because oftentimes they'll chew me out for calling them and say, why did you call me? So those conversations happen. And absolutely. Yeah. And I know this never, ever happens, but if a nurse perceives a physician or a resident being arrogant or maybe not speaking to them like a collegial professional, what should that nurse do? How should they handle that interaction? Well, I think standing one's ground and explaining why you're you're bringing up the concern or the question or the comment and to try to, again, drive that understanding and have the physician or resident really understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. I think... If it's a recurrent problem, especially with a trainee, it is always okay to escalate that to their supervising physician or their residency program director. If it's if you're seeing, you know, everybody has a bad day, but if you're seeing any kind of recurrent pattern or they're really out of line, it's absolutely fine to bring it to their attention. And sometimes a little counseling goes a long way. And that particular, you know, I don't want to defend anybody. They may not realize how they're coming off to the outside world too. Um, and just being able to point it out, you know, there are also ways to 
give feedback that could be effective that are behaviorally based, very specific, you know, and if you feel like you can point that out to the medical student or resident or physician and say, this is the behavior that I'm seeing and this has the potential to negatively impact patient care because I don't think you're hearing why I'm concerned. You know, I think if you always bring it back to the patient, that's often a very productive way to go because we really all are in this for the same purpose, and that's to take care of people. Because the patient outcome is kind of the bottom line. I mean, that's really why we're there. And we have to get beyond the personalities, get beyond the turf wars, the silos, the wheelhouses, and get to the collegial cooperation and cross multidisciplinary work that is really what makes healthcare hum. Right. That's what drives the engine. And you're a hundred percent right. Yeah. And you can quote me on that. And you know, in the bigger world, business, et cetera, and in my little world, I talk and write a lot about emotional intelligence and relational intelligence and now even behavioral intelligence. So do you feel like that's being addressed in medical school? Because I don't think it's being addressed much in nursing school. You know, it it is being addressed perhaps to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think even before medical school, people are being selected out for their academic abilities and how well they perform on the MCAT, which is the test you have to take to get into medical school. Right. And they're not necessarily being selected out for their emotional intelligence and behavioral intelligence. It's more their IQ and test taking abilities exactly. and things like that. Yeah. And so I think looking at applicants more holistically, which is it's happening. Um, mm-hmm. I think medical schools could do even a better job of it and residency programs too. I think it would bring more humanistic component to our fields. Yeah. I mean, you can have a nurse or a physician who is an incredible clinician. They are amazing diagnosticians. They are incredibly skilled at the actual tasks that they do or the surgeries they perform. However, at the same time, if they're lacking the behavioral and emotional intelligence to navigate relationships with patients and with colleagues, a lot can get lost there. And no matter how wonderful they are in what they actually do, if the communication doesn't work, then a lot of that is not going to matter as much. And patient satisfaction is so huge right now. And we know that Medicare reimbursement is based on HCAP scores. So we need to all pull together and up the ante in terms of our abilities to communicate well. You've hit the nail on the head, Keith. I would even take it one step further and say, not just about HCAP scores, not just about patient satisfaction, but Mm -hmm. sometimes not having that emotional intelligence or the communication skills can lead to less than ideal outcomes. Absolutely. Right. And we're now hearing reports of, well, there've always been reports, but I'm hearing more lately about physician depression, anxiety, suicidality, actual completed suicides of physicians. And I'm assuming there's financial pressures, there's work pressures, there's the hours that have to be put in. So that must give you a lot of cause for concern when you're teaching these these young, impressionable people who are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and maybe have some rose-colored glasses on. And it might raise some concerns for you about what's going to happen to these people once I release them out into the world. Yes, it absolutely does. You know, yeah. there all, all of those factors that you identified, 
you know, dysfunctions in the U.S. medical care system, mm-hmm. pressures from the electronic medical record and insurance companies mm. and patient load and student deep, loan deep, debt, student loan debt, depersonalization. You know, there are a lot of factors and, you know, it's hard to pinpoint what actually is the issue. But that's why there's more and more focus on wellness and resilience these days. And I don't know if that focus on wellness is it's a way to go. I don't know if it's necessarily the right way. We probably need to be looking at systematic fixes as well. Right. You know, most medical schools and residency programs and are and even beyond are looking at how do you build resilience and wellness and joy and meaning and what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I just had this flash in my mind. Wouldn't it be incredible? And I know this would be a heavy lift and a lot of people would laugh, say it would be absolutely impossible. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a nursing school and a medical school that are geographically located nearby one another? And imagine having seminars on emotional and relational intelligence where the nursing students and the medical students and residents could actually witness one another in communication. They could actually practice communication skills. And I know that seems like it could be a very difficult thing to pull off, but it could have a lot of benefit just like medical improv is becoming this thing where medical students are taking part in improv, not for entertainment, but to actually learn how to interact and have better communication. I love that idea. And, you know, and there are plenty of universities where there's the nursing school and the medical school right side by side. You know, I went to UCLA and they were right there. Right. And I think there's tons of opportunity in those areas that you talked about around communication and empathy, Uh but even taking it a step further and thinking about, can you do clinical scenarios together and Mm -hmm. do clinical simulations with a decompensating patient on the floor and Mm -hmm. everybody actually playing the roles that they're going to be in someday. And absolutely, man, that's a great idea. Or or trading roles, have the nursing student be the doctor and the medical student be the nurse and say, Hey, walk a mile in this person's Crocs or whatever. So that's brilliant. Yeah, it could be incredible. And if you need contacts in the medical improv world, I know two of the national experts in medical improv. So we can talk about that offline. Awesome. Who are they? One is Beth Boynton. She's actually already been on my show. And another colleague as well, Stephanie Frederick. So there's plenty of people out there who are doing great work in medical improv right now and going to medical schools to do this. So we can chat about that later too, if you want to contact them, because it's great work being done out there. Yes, I've actually done a medical improv day-long program. It was my favorite session that I've done in the last several years. It was I knew it. I knew it. See, I've been reading your mail. Anyway, (laughs) um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, you know, I think I'm a little older than you. Actually, I'm pretty sure I'm older than you. I'm 55, just about a couple months. You got me by a couple years. Yeah, I got you. I knew it. See, I've been reading your mail. I don't have your social security number though, so you can rest assured. Um, That's good. So Gen Xers and baby boomers like ourselves, I'm like on the tail end of the baby boomer beginning of Gen X, born in 64. So we're all kind of on our way out. We're entering the autumn and winter of our lives, and millennials are taking over positions of power and influence in every industry we can name. And in about 10 years, they're going to be the majority in terms of leadership. So in terms of millennial students, of which many are in your purview, 
What are you hopeful about that you see with this generation? Because I think it is a mind-blowingly amazing generation, and I'm very hopeful myself. But how do you view this generation in terms of medical education and then actually launching into the world as physicians? What do you see? Oh, I see a number of really great things, Keith. You know, there's generalizations that get made about every generation. Of course. And for, for the <laughs> yeah. most part, most of them probably aren't fair generalizations. And I think with the millennials that we're seeing, they're very idealistic. Mm -hmm. I think they have really great ideas about work-life balance and, mm -hmm. you know, probably seeing what's been going on and forming those opinions. I think a real sense of fairness almost egalitarianism and looking more at flat organizational structure, which can be quite effective and probably needs to happen a little bit more in, in the medical profession. Yeah, I think, and they're incredibly bright. They're tuned into technology and that's oh, yes. where the world is going. No, I think the future is very bright. I think so too. And some of the areas where I talk about and think about a lot are things like transgender health and the treatment of people who come in on varying parts of the gender continuum, for instance. And also, I feel millennials have this open-mindedness to a large extent. Of course, these are all generalizations too, and I'm making some positive ones. But I see millennials as open-minded. They've been raised to accept varying lifestyles, varying types of family structures, um, gender expression, loving who you love, marrying who you marry, having children if you want to, no matter who your spouse is. So I'm seeing in terms of like, what would you call them? I guess basic intrinsic values, how one views society and people. I just have so much hope and optimism about the millennial generation. Right. And even on some of those topics that you're talking about, they're pushing the medical community in the right direction. And mm -hmm talking about transgender care and expressing an interest in that training and wanting to embrace it. And, you know, it's pushing us in the right direction. It, it's, you know, ultimately about the best care for the patients. And sometimes you need to push in that direction to make sure that they're getting the best care. Right. And one of the examples I often use around transgender care is from my own experience as a nurse in a community health center in Massachusetts, actually. I had many transgender patients because I did a lot of HIV AIDS work and worked with that community in Springfield, Mass and Holyoke, Massachusetts. And for instance, a patient of mine, this is a true story, a trans man, so a woman transitioning to male, hasn't had surgery yet, but is doing testosterone, comes into the clinic, full beard, deep voice, all those secondary sex characteristics that are changing, hasn't had surgery, maybe had top surgery, but hasn't had genital alteration or surgery, gender reassignment. And that apparent man walks in checking in for his annual pap smear. And how is he treated by the front desk? How does the medical assistant treat him? Are there varying boxes to check in terms of gender or how that person wants to be addressed? What pronouns do they want to be used? How are they treated by the nurse when the nurse takes their vitals? How does it work when the nurse is prepping them for the GYN exam? And this person appears as a man, but actually has female genitalia. I mean, the aspects of that are mind-blowing and also very common. 
So I'm glad to hear from you that the millennials are pushing this generation of medical education in the medical world to meet the 21st century head on. Right. And they're doing it in the best way possible. And, you know, I think even what you're bringing up now speaks to the value that interprofessional team-based education could have, because it's not just about the doctor knowing what to do for the right exam, but the front desk and the nursing staff and everybody learning Mm -hmm. the right pronouns and the right terminology and the ideal way to treat somebody. So it just, it loops right back around to your idea of getting people, you know, into situations where they can be getting training together. Right. And having simple things like gender neutral bathrooms. I mean, there's so many ways that we can improve the care and having these savvy millennials talk to each other and collaborate. There's great things that can happen. And I'm very encouraged. And I have two more questions. The first question is, do medical residents and medical students understand and are they beginning to be educated on the scope of practice of advanced practice registered nurses and nurse practitioners? Because I know here in New Mexico, nurse practitioners have the widest scope of practice of any state in the country, complete autonomy. And are the medical schools addressing this? Because it's happening and NPs are gaining more ground in terms of family practice. And I know there's a lot of pushback and political intrigue here, but is there an understanding of the the importance and the usefulness of advanced practice nurses? You know, I would say that the education around the topic of advanced practice nurses or nurse practitioners is not adequate. And I don't want to make statements that cut too broad a swath, but I would say Mm -hmm. that most medical schools are probably not doing much in the way of education around that. And individual students are finding out about it through their medical societies or through the news or through talking to people, but probably not really as part of the formal curriculum, except in a handful of medical schools that are that are doing that so no there's another area for improvement and as you're stating it's a fluid situation too where things are changing yeah yeah and i know the the prognostication for a shortage of primary care physicians in this country is pretty incredible in terms of how many we feel we're going to be losing and not gaining enough to replace them. So APRNs have their place. And I'm not sure if you're aware, in California, there's actually a bill circulating for NPs to gain more broader scope of practice and autonomy. And I know there's a bill before Congress right now in terms of NPs and PAs being able to sign off and order home health services, which they can't do in most instances. So changes are afoot. We have 22 states plus the District of Columbia and Guam are the places where nurse practitioners have complete autonomy. So the sea change is upon us. So it'll be interesting to watch. And I'm just kind of sitting back and watching and observing what's happening. (laughs) Yeah, it will be really interesting and fascinating. You you, you know more about this than I do. I'm going to, you know, it's, um, but yes, I was aware of the bill in California. It's a hot button topic. Totally. I have no doubt. So before we go away, is there anything we haven't talked about that you would just like to mention, especially keeping in mind that my audience is probably 95% nurses? First, I would like to thank you personally, Keith, for taking the time out of your busy schedule 
I don't remember how long ago it was, about nine months ago, <laughs> I was trying to figure out the podcasting world a little bit and got put in touch with you through a medical student who I know, and you very kindly took the time to kind of point me in the right direction and sure. provide some resources. And I think that has led to some of the activities that I'm involved in and this conversation that we're having today. My pleasure. So I appreciate it for your audience that's listening. Thank you to the nurses out there. I, I referenced it earlier. I learned a ton during medical school and residency from nurses. On my website, there's a link to a blog article that I published through Harvard Basie about a night where a nurse had a really profound effect on me in the ICU mm. by helping me out with, you know, trying to figure out how to learn how to pronounce a patient. Right. Uh, I saw that article. Mm -hmm. But nurses many times are underappreciated in, in what we all do. And I'm sure plenty of physicians feel underappreciated too, but you deserve loads of appreciation because you're really the front lines, the ones that are taking care of these patients throughout the day and night in the yeah. hospital. So thank you. Thank you for that. I'm sure the audience member listening right now is nodding her head and, and really appreciating hearing those words from you. So well, they thank deserve you. It. Thank you so much, Ted. This has really been wonderful. Oh, it's my pleasure, Keith. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course, of course. So there you have it. Thank you for listening to The Nurse Keith Show. And remember that the show notes for this episode are at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 216. There'll be links to Ted's website, his social media presence on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram. We'll make sure you have all that. There'll also be a link to the article that he just referenced telling that story about a nurse who really helped him at a time when he really needed it. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered by this episode and that You'll really think deeply about these relationships between physicians and nurses and do your part of improving communication and improving collegiality between the medical world and the nursing world. The Nurse Keith Show is edited and produced by Tim Hollowell and his team at thepodcastinggroup.com and social media and promotion are capably handled by Mark Cappy Spiesen. Stay positive, care for yourself and others. Take those inspired actions that you need to take in the interest of your personal development and your career satisfaction, and be well, dig deep, seek joy, and keep in touch. And this is Nurse Keith signing off from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Dr. Ted O'Connell from... I'm signing off from Green Valley, California, just outside of Napa. All right. So thank you again, Ted. And thank you for being here with me, and we will see everyone on the other side. <laughs>